<laughs> Look, there's a reason that I shouldn't have ever been asked any questions on this pod, and I think this there's pod... There's a reason why I shouldn't host them. So. Th- 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 this, uh, there's a reason why uh, I shouldn't be doing this. Welcome back to The Human Element, Kara's podcast focusing on finding ways to inject humanity into modern-day marketing. I am going to be doing the hosting this time, which is something very different. We will be interviewing our own podcast host, Robert, who is also CMO of Kara. So basically, we've been off for a couple weeks because it's, oh, I don't know, the end of summer and nobody wanted to hear from us anyway. And our first one back, our brilliant idea is, hey, let's ask the clown who, who interviews people a bunch of questions. Is that, is that what our audience is about to, to, yes. to be in for? Yes, and you are my boss. So if I never appear on this podcast again, we all know why. All right, let's start from the very beginning. How did you get into the advertising industry? Dumb luck. I had been working at the State House of Representatives in Pennsylvania and had done some messaging on campaigns and some kind of targeting of of audiences. And I had an opportunity to go to Washington. I had been also talking to some folks in New York about advertising. And it was related in that it had to do with messaging and communications and whatnot. And so I sort of wound up with kind of the, the proverbial fork in the road to either go to D.C. and be in politics or to go to New York and do uh, advertising communication. And my best friend was living in the city at the time. And it just seemed like a whole lot more fun to hang out with good old Nup than to go to D.C. and not know anybody. So I got an offer from Ogilvy because I, I knew some folks who worked there. They happened to be the AOR for Hershey Chocolate Company at the time. And as anybody who's seen my Twitter feed knows, I'm that's my hometown. So that's sort of how it happened. I don't know that it was any more thoughtful than that. I mean, I think I always knew that I wanted to do stuff around communications and expression. And and I always had a fascination with brands, even when I was young and I didn't know what they were. Mm -hmm. So I remember I went to see my grandparents in Miami and I flew by myself on Eastern Airlines. And I was maybe 10. And, you know, you get the little wings when you're a kid. And I remember like drawing the Eastern Airlines logo. I got fascinated by like airline logos for a period of time. And I couldn't really express why it was interesting to me, but it always was interesting to me. I have no clue how to respond to that. That seems like a really weird (laughs) hobby as a child, but you know, you're in the right track. (laughs) So moving into advertising versus politics, would you consider that your most pivotal moment in your career? Or is there another point in time? It certainly was a big decision because it would have been a I suspect I would have had a, a totally different career. In hindsight, I feel fortunate that I made the decision I, I made, not just because politics has become a more complicated enterprise, but because I have fallen in love with marketing as a discipline and the people that I've met along the way in this business. So as an industry, where are we right now in the digital transformation? Is that capital T, the digital transformation? It's like the Mesozoic what era. <laughs> what other ones are there? Yes. The past decade and a half have been exceptionally tumultuous and chaotic and turbulent in our business. And that's not going to change. I think, you know, and you hear this all the time, you know, change is the new normal and blah, blah, blah. And all those things are true. I mean, they're cliche, but they're true. I think we're at a point where there is broad recognition in every single 
area of the marketing services business. So, you know, whether you're doing brand identity or whether you're doing advertising or whether you're doing, you know, digital experiences or application development or whether you're doing, you know, NASCAR sponsorships, anything, that work has been and will continue to be totally changed, both the work product itself, the way you work, the talent required to do the work by digital. The question now is, are we making enough progress in reinventing the ways that we work and the talent required and the way that we integrate that work across disciplines and the way that we bring value to clients? Are we doing that intelligently enough, quickly enough, creatively enough? And I think that's the challenge. So so to me, we are at that point in the quote-unquote transformation where it's not, hey, have you launched you know, Cara Digital? Those days are long gone. It's how are you bringing a new way of working that is flexible and agile enough to take advantage of all that has happened and all that will come. Yeah, a lot of those components seem to fall under that CMO umbrella. And Mm. as a CMO yourself, what is the current state of the CMO and potential future Mm. of that role? I think a couple things are happening at the same time. One is we've managed to get to higher ground as it relates to tenure, which I think is good. That has not reduced the pressures on the job, but at least it has reduced, I think, some of the lunacy of, you know, hey, you get 14 months. Because as it turns out, marketing is not a short-term enterprise. The more that we get out of some of that thinking, the better off we are. The day-in, day-out performance orientation of so much of the CMO's job, particularly in retail, but in in, in many, you know, DTC and, and, and other places, means that we're not focused enough on how brands and the infrastructure for brands and their growth and development get built. And I think we forget that at our own peril. That is that is what our job is. Yes, it's to drive growth. Yes, it's to impact the business. Yes, it's to improve financial performance. But first and foremost, we are the caretakers of the sacred trust that is the brands of our organization. And I think we have to keep that top of mind. We have to keep that as core to our mission. You see that I think some organizations have lost their way on that front. You know, Kraft Heinz is probably the best example, and they've lost an enormous amount of their brand value as a result. And that is a cautionary tale to being a CMO that is completely wedded to the day in, day out. You know, here's my top sheet of performance this morning at the sole exclusion of what am I doing to build value, connectivity, and relationships with consumers and prospects. Is there a specific skill that a CMO today should have that seems more successful for the role that it's in? Curiosity and a sense of wonder. Very uh, vague. Well, Sounds like a true marketer. <laughs> Spoken like a very true Yeah, and I'm not trying to be, look, I'm not trying to be opaque. I, I am at my best as a marketer, and I feel that I perform my best as a marketer, as a CMO, when I am being inquisitive and curious about what is happening. What is happening in technology, what is happening in ways of working, what is happening in in the way we sort of work in different kinds of ways, and in the capabilities and new capabilities and platforms of technologies. But that's also true of the way that you know consumers are behaving. So you have to have a natural sense of wonder and curiosity at those elements to be successful. How is technology progressing? How are people changing and how are they behaving? How are cultural and societal issues impacting how I communicate the values 
and beliefs of my brand. All of that is driven by a sense of curiosity and, and wonder. You know, I, I often ask myself, um, you know, I wonder what is the right thing. I, I wonder where things are going. I, you know, that sense is on my best day, I think, among my most valuable assets. So I think it has to start there. And then there's all kinds of, other, you know, you have to be quantitative, you have to be qualitative, you have to have a decent set of understanding of what is good work. You have to have a, a, a real sense of creative filter and creative lens. All those things are still important. You know, and there's a lot of people, I think, that would disagree with this to some extent, but it's still a gut game, you know? All the data in the world will render you paralyzed if you don't have some intuition, some intuitive sense that this is the path I'm going to go with because I have a sense that that's where a cultural moment is taking me or that's where a consumer behavioral trend is taking me. You know, at the end of the day, not all of that can be rooted in a one or a zero. Your role sounds daunting from that. <laughs> but I think well, that's I, all C-level roles, right? You're yeah. always on. Yeah. So what is yeah. your biggest form of inspiration to continue that momentum at any time or that creativity or curiosity? So there's two ways to look at inspiration, right? There's humans that inspire you. And then there's experiences and places and artifacts and activities that inspire you. In the second bucket, exercise is so vitally important to me. There is virtually no important thing that I write, and I write a fair amount, that doesn't get either highly edited or created or birthed while I'm working out. There's no doubt that there are moments of recollected tranquility, to quote Wordsworth, that are really important. So there are places I go to, to feel inspired. And then there are things that I do, and a lot of that has to do with the consumption of art and information. On the first bucket, the people, I, I mean, there's just loads and loads and loads of folks that inspire me. You know, going to my mom to get a gut check on, like, what real people think, you know, people far and away removed from the business that we are in that don't live, you know, in and around Manhattan and, and, and aren't occupied in the coastal elite bubble is always a good thing. The other component to your role is to lead a large team. Now, and prior to this role, you led a team of 3,500 people globally. Yeah. How do you maintain that same curiosity, that collaboration, and that innovation within that team when you're not in front of them face-to-face every day? Yeah, it's really hard. And I don't know that I was successful with it all the time. The way I looked at it was you had to certainly had to get on a plane and be in front of people. And I certainly did a fair amount of that. There was always a need to kind of do that work whether it was at the events that we went to or whether it was you know, going to our locations themselves. And then I did a one-on-one or panel-based video series there that we did over 100 episodes of. And that show to me, we let it out into the atmosphere to all people to see. They didn't have to work at IBM to see it. But first and foremost in that show for me was always, what are we showing? How are we educating? How are we trying to inspire the folks that were in my area. And so that was a always a vehicle for me of trying to get those folks to be inspired to listen to different external perspectives on things. IBM's a remarkable company, but it it can on its bad days be pretty insular. And so, you know, that whole show was literally for my team to hear external non-IBM perspectives on the way the world works and the way marketers are doing different things. And so that's probably my favorite example. 
Now, looking ahead, what are some most important areas of focus for the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020 in this role? There's a couple things. One, obviously, you know, Michael's elevation to the global role provides us a real opportunity to set an agenda and set a tone for how things are going to be different and what we want those things to be and how the way we work together changes. And so one of the things you'll see from us is a relaunch of our brand, what our brand values are and how we express them in this day and age. But corollary to that is the way that we want to change how we do our work. And that's going to be a much more design-oriented kind of approach. And so that's certainly going to be a big part of what we do here throughout the balance of 2019 and a huge part of 2020. That's kind of job one. Job two is we have some real work to do around how we pursue our awards agenda in that we're just not very good about it. And that has to be completely reinvented. And that is a, that is a company-wide thing. So to any Cara people who may be listening right now, you know, we will need you to, to help us do that. You know, you can't simply have the marketing department hang out a shingle and say we care about awards. That doesn't work. It has to start with the brief. It has to start with the client engagement and all that starts with our team. So that's a, a huge effort for us. And then I think the last thing is you will continue to see us push as hard as we can into content. So obviously, you know, we've done 30-some odd of these. We will continue to do that next year. We will continue to expand our video series with kind of C-suite folks called Care Conversations. And then I think you'll see us continue to expand what we're doing in social around campaign-based, editorial, calendar-based stuff. Some of that will have a thought leadership component to it. Some of it will be kind of fun stuff, right? So I think of, you know, Care Client Summer as... As an example of that, I think you'll see us do more of that kind of stuff next year. As part of the brand relaunch, you know, kind of our personality and our voice are a critical bit in that. And so the way we drive that forward is through formalized and informalized thought leadership and then those kind of associated peaks under the covers or inside the box of who the spirit of care really is. And I think you'll see that in our, in our social channels. Wow, we have a lot of work cut out for us, Robert. <laughs> Thank you this, for telling me all this. This is, this is, this is unfair. This is, um, she's like both judging and thinking, I don't want to do that, or, oh, that might be interesting. You can handle that. I can see her mind. Like, oh, Lord. <laughs> all right, but the most important question of the day. Oh, boy. Why do you love this business? Because what I think I do best, what makes me feel most me, is what, by and large, has always been most valued by this business. So how we communicate, how we take stock of the belief systems that we have, uh, how we build a sense of, of who we are and what we stand for and what matters, that's what building brands is all about. This is a job where I think if you're going to do it well, you got to be able to communicate. And you got to be able to stand up in front of people and, and talk, which is one of the things I love doing most in the world. And you got to be able to write. I have always loved that about the business is that it, it has always, I felt, taken advantage of the things that most naturally are things I'd call my talents to the extent that I have any. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to go to the lightning round. Yeah, okay. Did, did I answer too many long no. answers? Okay. You, uh, you nailed it. Who is your biggest role model? My mom and dad. My dad, because he's the best man I've ever met, and my mom, because she 
raised a family, had a career, you know, at a time where that was not what happened. And she, for much of, if not all of, my dad's later professional life, she was, you know, she was the breadwinner for a long time while he was getting his business off the ground and then he was sick. Her, even now, I could go to mom and talk to her about sort of corporate-oriented questions, and she has a great perspective because she was in it for a really long time. Best career advice given or received? Well, I have two. The first is... Like a traditional lightning round. (laughs) Yes, go on, Robert. Oh, this is the part where we (laughs) elongate our answers. The first is it's all about the people, and, and that was a saying from my dad, and nothing has ever been more true in my life than that is... You get up and, you know, you commute and you go to work for the people and you travel and go to London and do the meetings for the people and you go to China and do the client meeting for the people. So it it is always, life is about the people. And then the second thing I got from a a very, very senior fellow at AT AT&T many, many years ago, it was a couple weeks before I got married, and what he said to me was, I only have one piece of career advice and one piece of marital advice, and it is the same piece of advice. And he said, get away once a quarter. He was like, I don't care if you go to the Holiday Inn down the street, get away. And he was right, Howard McNally, you were right. Too often in my own life, I have not done that, and it has always been to the detriment of my professional and personal life. So I can't strongly advocate for that piece of advice enough. The album that's defined your teenage years. This is so hard. It's really, really, really close. I'm going to go with Unforgettable Fire, uh, U2. It has my favorite song of all time on it, Bad, which is a marvelous, marvelous, wonderfully depressing song that I adore. But it's By a Nose over Pyromania by Def Leppard. Favorite European football player of all time. And by European, you mean just soccer. Correct. He doesn't necessarily, he, he, he can be British, is what I'm saying. Yes. That's okay. Because I don't know the Britons in Europe anymore. I don't know. It changes by the minute. Is, is Boris <laughs> Johnson put still? some weird political <laughs> thing. Uh-huh. Uh, Paul Scholes is a central midfielder for Manchester United. Um, uh, had asthma. Never the fastest guy on the team. Never the most fit. But the most brilliant passer of all time, in my opinion. And a brilliant, brilliant footballing mind. And your son's second best, right? Well, for sure. Both both 18s, I might add. Both number 18s. Least favorite marketing jargon, word or saying? This is impossible. I, they're all so goddamn bad. Whether it was synergize or leverage or, you know, any of that kind of jargony nonsense. But I think... It's not a single word, it is a phrase, and it is the phrase at the end of the day. I say it, I use it, but that phrase is so hideously overused, I I think it's probably that, at the end of the day. We just found our podcast name. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, that's it right there. All right, last but not least, what's one thing people don't know about you that they should? When I'm on the road and I can't sleep, whether I'm jet-lagged or what have you, I have this monk that I listen to on YouTube who does this like seated meditation thing and he is the most soothing, you know, the whole ASMR nonsense. And he is undefeated in his ability to get me to go to sleep. So I would say people should know that I have solved insomnia and it is this, it is this crazy monk who does this kind of YouTube meditation. Wow. 
That is, I don't know if we needed to know that, Jason. He, he, he's Rinpoche. If you if you Google Rinpoche, R I N P O C E, I think, or I, that's how I say it. I don't know how you pronounce it. God knows. Meditation, you will see him, and he's this like little itty bitty monk, and he does this whole, you know. He's the OG of ASMR. I don't know that that's true because he just came out with it. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> I, I, because ASMR. I mean, I, I, I'm, I suspect on YouTube there's you know 15 year old ASMR videos, but he's the man. So there Great. you go, boy. Well, isn't that insightful? Thanks insight for part? joining the pod, Robert. Thank you. Well, listen, Chelsea. It was delightful to do this. You did a fantastic job as ever. Thanks. You gonna close out now for me? No, I, no, it's not my pod. Damn it, I tried. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. We will be back out to you next week, and you can hear us anywhere you hear a pod. And perish the thought. Give us a like. (laughs) That was fantastic. There you go. 